0: welcome to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Kahn. Thank you very much for listening, and welcome back to this new season of the podcast. I know I said in the last part of our series on the Ukrainian War of Independence that I would begin a series of episodes on Roman Emperor Julian the Apostate in two weeks, but however, plans changed as they so often tend to do. This summer, I was quite busy with preparing to move and everything, and decided that the best course of action for me would be to take a brief hiatus. But now, we are back, and while this series will not, in fact, be about Julian the Apostate, I get the feeling that a lot of people are going to enjoy this one. For all of those among you who are fans of Emperor Julian, worry not, the script for those episodes still exists somewhere, and I do have plans to produce this series at a later date. Anyway. On with today's regularly scheduled programming. In 1935, it seemed that nothing could stop the ascent of Louisiana politician Huey P. Long. Having begun his career as a simple country lawyer, Huey had risen through the political ranks in a remarkably short period of time, first becoming governor of Louisiana and later a United States Senator. At the time, he seemed poised to present a considerable challenge to the reelection of the incumbent president, Franklin D. Roosevelt, that is, until September 8th, 1935, when he was cut down in the Louisiana state Capitol by a lone assassin's bullet. The legacy which Huey left behind is a rather controversial one, to say the very least. His detractors, both at the time and to this day, called him a demagogue, a dangerous political tyrant who would usher in fascism to America. His defenders, on the other hand, Maintained that he was a well-meaning populist, a champion of the common man, who did all in his power to improve the lot of the average American citizen. This all begs the question, who was Huey Long exactly? This man who was, and remains, such a polarizing figure in American history. In this series of the Historia Dramatica podcast, I intend to give an in-depth look into the life and times of Huey Long, so as to give the most fair and balanced view of the man that I possibly can. So, without further ado, let's get into the narrative. Huey Pierce Long Jr. was born on August 30th, 1893, to Hugh Long Sr. and Caledonia Tizan. He was the seventh of nine children. His birthplace, Winfield, Louisiana, holds the unfortunate distinction of being the county seat of one of the poorest and most backwater parishes in the entire state of Louisiana. At the time, it boasted a population of a little under 3,000. The population of the parish was almost double that number. Wholly one-fifth of the population was illiterate. The people of Wynne Parish lived in small, unsturdy wooden shacks with dirt floors, and with none of the amenities to which people today are accustomed, neither running water nor electricity. As long biographer T. Harry Williams writes, Wynne was poor, pathetically, almost sensationally poor so much so that its condition became a byword in the state for poverty, end quote. Despite the fact that the soil in the area was not at all conducive to agriculture, the majority of Wynn Parish's population were subsistence farmers, including Huey's father, Hugh Long Sr. As a matter of fact, the Long family was rather well off compared to their neighbors. Hugh owned a 348-acre tract of farmland, on which he built a large, ten-room, two-story house. In spite of the family's marginally improved economic standing when compared to the rest of the population of the parish, Huey often liked to play up his humble origins throughout his political career. Because of its poverty and ostracization from Southern society at large, Wynn Parish became a bastion of populism in the center of a largely conservative state, Its representative had elected not to secede from the Union in 1861. In 1892, the majority of its population had voted for the Populist Party's candidate for governor, and later, in 1912, a plurality voted for the Socialist Party's candidate for president, Eugene V. Debs, including Hugh Long Sr. Growing up, young Huey would have heard plenty of populist rhetoric from people about town. In his autobiography, Huey recalled having his greatest political awakening at the age of 8 years old, when he was witness to what he called a sheriff's sale. A farmer's plot of land was auctioned to repay the debts he owed to a local store. When the land was sold, the farmer begged and pleaded with the sheriff to just give him one more year to repay his debts. Quote, I was horrified. I could not understand. It seemed criminal. End quote. By age 14, young Huey was already beginning to get involved in politics. At this time, he campaigned for gubernatorial candidate Theo Wilkinson, who ultimately lost to the establishment candidate J.Y. Sanders. Huey later said of his early political involvement, quote, "...all I remember is that the first time I knew anything about it, I was in it." End quote. Several anecdotes attest to Huey's rebellious nature from a very young age. When he was eight years old, the first train came to Winfield, and Huey immediately crawled underneath it to inspect it, delaying the train's departure by several hours. The well next to the family's house was constantly covered, for fear that Huey would try to jump in it to see what it was like. In his teenage years, Huey smoked, drank, chewed tobacco, and swore like a farmhand. Of his behavior, Huey's father said, quote, If that boy lives past 21, it will be the wonder of the world. Hughie was by his nature outspoken and attention-seeking, as one childhood friend put it: quote, "If he couldn't pitch, he wouldn't play." Hughie's loud mouth got him into trouble more times than one, but for all his boisterousness and hyperactivity, Hughie often shied away from directly engaging in physical violence. His words would get him into fights, but he delegated the actual combat to his brother Earl, Earl, who was younger than him was actually larger and physically tougher. Winfield, being as poor and insignificant as it was, did not have a public school system until Huey had reached the age of 11. The fact that he was homeschooled for most of his childhood did not prove to be a detriment to his overall education. Young Huey was a voracious reader from a very young age. The Longs greatly valued education and had aspirations for all of their children to attend college. They kept a multitude of books in the family home, and these books that Huey read at a young age would shape his future personality and his politics. For instance, one of his favorite books was a multi-volume History of the World by John Clark Ridpath. Ridpath stressed the importance of strong leaders and decried the evil of concentrated wealth. Young Huey developed a particularly keen interest in the life of Napoleon Bonaparte and looked up to him as his idol. Huey's favorite book by far, however, was Alexandre Dumas' Count of Monte Cristo, in which the protagonist enacts harsh revenge upon his enemies. It remained his favorite well into later years. As an adult, one anecdote attests that, as he was walking by a bookstore with a friend, his friend pointed out a copy of The Count of Monte Cristo in a display window, and asked if Huey had ever read it. Huey replied that he indeed read it, several times, in fact. He then told his friend what he interpreted the moral of the novel to be. Quote, The man in that book knew how to hate, and until you learn how to hate, you never get anywhere in the world. End quote. When Huey began to attend school at age 12, he earned excellent grades, but quickly found himself bored. One year, after having reviewed the curriculum for the 7th grade, Huey determined that there was simply no point in bothering, and he took it upon himself to promote himself to the 8th grade, Huey's outspoken and combative nature lent itself well to debate. He joined his high school's debate team and made it to the state championships at Louisiana State University, where he came in third place in the competition. He was offered a scholarship to attend LSU, but felt he had to decline, as he could not afford the room, board, and textbooks. In the 11th grade, Huey abruptly left high school. There are two differing accounts of how this came about. One holds that Huey dropped out in protest of being made to take another year of classes. Another, more interesting account, holds that Huey was expelled. Huey, already having demonstrated his propensity to be the center of attention and to control the people around him, had formed a secret society in the school. He later recalled, quote, "...it was the sort of society that was to run things," end quote. He would create certain rules that often ran contrary to those of the faculty, If his fellow students chose to follow the official rules, Huey and his cronies would ensure that they would be excluded from extracurricular activities, such as baseball. When the administration learned of Huey's antics and warned him to stay in line, Huey and his clique began to circulate a flyer denouncing them. Not even Huey's subsequent expulsion could stop him. He soon sent a petition around town, demanding that the principal be fired. When it acquired enough signatures, the principal was indeed fired. In spite of this victory, Huey made no attempt to finish high school, nor did he go right to college either. Having already determined that he would not be attending LSU, Huey decided to forego university altogether. Instead, he wished to work to support his large family financially. Huey detested farm work. He hated the dirt, he hated the rigid monotony of it, and moreover, he feared that if he continued at farm work, He would end up sticking with it for the rest of his life, as his father had. He sought something that would get him off the farm, and perhaps something that would get him away from godforsaken Wind Parish for good. As a teenager, he worked some odd jobs. Milk delivery boy, water boy at a construction site. This gig was actually cut short when a falling brick hit him on the head and knocked him unconscious. And as a typewriter for two local publications. Huey had discovered his knack for salesmanship at a young age, when he and his childhood friend, Harley Bozeman, would travel from town to town auctioning off used books. Thanks to this same friend, Huey was able to score a job as a traveling salesman in July of 1910. From this time until September 1914, Huey traveled throughout the entirety of the South, from Austin, Texas to Memphis, Tennessee, and everywhere in between, selling whatever he could—books, canned goods, fresh produce, patent medicines— and a cottonseed-based lard substitute named Cotyline. Huey's salesmanship techniques were effective if a bit unconventional. He would go to remarkable lengths to sell his product to people. If his charm alone failed to seal the deal, he would resort to using biblical rhetoric to prove his point. If that too failed, Huey would simply barge into the prospective buyer's home and bake a cake or prepare a meal using Coddeline in order to demonstrate the product's effectiveness. When he entered a new town, Huey would often invite all the local housewives to a baking contest. It was at one such event in Shreveport, Louisiana, in October 1910, that Huey met Rose McConnell. Upon spotting the dark-haired, dark-eyed Rose in the crowd, Huey became instantly smitten with her and awarded her first prize. To Huey, Rose was the most beautiful woman he had ever laid eyes on. To Rose, Huey was quick-witted and clever and thus began a courtship that lasted two and a half years. Huey would have likely proposed to her right away, had he not felt so insecure in his financial position that he did not believe he could start a family. Nevertheless, he proposed to her twice before she finally accepted. The couple was finally married on April 12, 1913, at a hotel in Memphis, Tennessee. At the time, Huey was so short on money that he had to borrow $10 from his new wife in order to pay the minister for his services. Rose and Huey would go on to have three children. Rose, born in 1917, Russell, born in 1918, and Palmer, born in 1921. That anecdote speaks to the fact that this was a very financially insecure period of Huey's life. In spite of his salesmanship ability, he found himself unable to keep a job for longer than half a year. He bounced around from town to town, from employer to employer, until he eventually found himself living on the streets of Memphis in the summer of 1911. At this time, Huey's mother, Caledonia, having heard of her son's dire straits, tried to convince him to follow his brother George's example, and to become a preacher. Huey then moved in with George in Shawnee, Oklahoma, and began attending classes at Oklahoma Baptist University. He dropped out after only one semester, telling his brother that he was simply not cut out to be a preacher. Huey then left Oklahoma and continued his nomadic salesman's lifestyle. The outbreak of the First World War in the summer of 1914 resulted in a steep drop in cotton prices, and the American South sank into an economic depression. Companies were forced to lay off their workers, and Huey was one of those unfortunate people. It was now nearly impossible for him to find work. At this time, he reached out to his older brother Julius, who by this point was a well-established lawyer in their hometown of Winfield. Julius suggested that Huey do what he did, and acquire a law degree from Tulane University in New Orleans. If he agreed to do this, Julius agreed to pay for his and Rose's expenses while he attended college. Huey accepted his offer without hesitation. Thus ended the four years of Huey's career as a traveling salesman. These years had made him none the richer materially, but he gained, over these years, a whole host of rhetorical skills that would prove invaluable to him later on in his political career. Huey and Rose moved into a dingy New Orleans apartment in September 1914, and Huey began taking classes at Tulane shortly thereafter. Huey later claimed that he crammed three years of coursework into one. This is a bit misleading, as he only earned grades in five courses throughout the year, But he attended several others, taking meticulous notes during lectures and not taking the exams. Huey dedicated between 16 and 20 hours a day to his studies. Rose took care to ensure that Huey kept up with his studies. Over the course of six months, Huey had taken eight courses at Tulane. Of these, he had fully completed two, failed two others, and did not take the final exam for four. At this point, Huey felt that, between all he had learned in classes and what he had managed to teach himself, He knew everything he needed to know about law, and now wished to take his bar exam. With his funds from Julius set to run out soon, Huey took the bold step of directly petitioning the Chief Justice of the Louisiana Supreme Court to take his exam a month early. He passed the exam with flying colors, and on May 15, 1915, Huey Long became a fully-fledged lawyer at the young age of 21. Days later, Huey moved back to Winfield to start practicing law, at first, he joined his brother Julius's law firm as a junior partner, but he was unhappy with this arrangement, and a series of disputes broke up the partnership. He rented a small anteroom above the local bank, where his uncle George was president. Huey would soon find that his career as a lawyer was not destined to earn him massive sums of money. He was barely earning enough to support himself and his new family, but it was just the same. He enjoyed what he did. He took cases that no other lawyers in town would, whether it was because they thought they were unwinnable or because the potential reward was simply too slim. During his tenure as a lawyer, Huey took on a high number of workers' compensation cases. He relished the opportunity to represent the poor and disenfranchised against big companies. He often liked to brag that he never took a case against a poor man. One of the most notable cases he took on during this period was one in which he represented a widow against the Bank of Winfield, in a long and drawn-out ordeal, Huey managed to inflame public opinion against his uncle and the bank, and he won the case. But Huey Long was not fated to be a lawyer. No doubt he was good at what he did. A lawman no less famous than William Howard Taft, former president and chief justice of the Supreme Court, attested to Huey's legal ability, saying that he had, quote, "...seldom seen a lawyer with a greater legal mind or better capacity to argue a legal point." End quote. Surely, Huey would have made a great district attorney, or even a corporate lawyer. And no doubt there were times that he was tempted to take his career in such directions. But, as early as 1913, Huey was harboring tall political ambitions. He laid out his plans to his wife, Rose, shortly after they were married. Huey told her that he planned to enter politics at a local level, running for some municipal office or other before running for a lower-level position in the state government. Eventually, he planned to become the governor of Louisiana, then a United States senator, and from there, he would inevitably become the president of the United States. At the time, Rose may have dismissed this sort of talk out of hand, but Huey was dead serious. In the summer of 1918, Huey threw his hat into the proverbial ring of politics when he announced his candidacy for the Louisiana Railroad Commission. The Railroad Commission was created by the state constitution of 1898, and had the enumerated powers to regulate not only the railroads, but also telephone and telegraph lines, steamboats, and pipelines as well. Despite its seemingly wide-ranging powers and nominal independence from the state government, the Railroad Commission was a moribund body. Its three members were more often than not cases of nepotism or washed-up political has-beens, looking for a comfy office to, to wait before retirement. They were expected to accede to the whims of the political bigwigs in Baton Rouge. Huey reasoned that this office would be the perfect place for him to begin his political career. He could make the theoretically powerful office into an actually powerful one, and he, by actively enforcing the laws and regulations that the commission was meant to, could make a name for himself on the state level. The main advantage that Huey had going into this race was the complacency of his primary competitor, former Judge Burke A. Bridges. Bridges had been elected to the commission in 1912 and went into the 1918 election under the expectation that he would be able to win easily, based solely on the fact that he was the incumbent. He was not expecting any of the four other candidates would put up much of a fight. He was not expecting Huey Long. Huey ran an energetic and unorthodox campaign. Well before the traditional start of campaigning season, Huey had begun traveling to various rural villages in northern Louisiana by automobile. Unusual as it may sound to modern audiences, Huey was actually one of the first politicians in Louisiana to utilize the automobile as a campaign strategy. Ultimately, Huey's campaign strategies got results he won election to the Railroad Commission, albeit by a narrow margin of just 600 votes. As I mentioned earlier, Huey intended, unlike his fellow commissioners, to actively utilize the wide-ranging powers of the commission to effect meaningful change in the state. One of his first actions as commissioner was to convene a meeting of independent oil producers to air their grievances against the Standard Oil Company. This was the opening salvo of what would prove to be a lifelong crusade against Standard Oil. In this, Huey was not motivated purely by the greater good, but rather his desire to see the company brought down to size was in fact very personal. In 1918, Huey had invested a couple thousand dollars in a local oil company. Although it had successfully struck oil, the company ultimately failed, as they lacked the facilities to refine crude oil. And the only company that had such facilities, Standard Oil, refused to purchase crude oil from third-party sellers. The rig was then shut down, and Huey lost his entire investment. In March of 1919, Huey drafted a manifesto accusing Standard Oil of importing cheap crude oil from Mexico to be processed at its refineries in Louisiana, instead of purchasing crude oil locally. The manifesto ended with an appeal to Governor Ruffin Pleasant to carry out a special session of the state legislature for the purpose of declaring oil pipelines public utilities, thereby placing them under the direct control of the Railroad Commission. Governor Pleasant refused to call such a session, claiming that the issue did not merit it. Huey interpreted Pleasant's decision as proof that he was in the pocket of Standard Oil. At a political rally on July 4, 1919, in the town of Hot Wells, Louisiana, Huey took to the stage and delivered a series of comments that many newspapers at the time deemed unprintable. He called Standard Oil an octopus, and its officials were among the nation's most notorious criminals. He denounced Governor Pleasant as an agent of this octopus, who was all too eager to do its bidding. Huey dedicated himself to taking Governor Pleasant down. It was also perhaps a realization that he needed powerful political allies that motivated him to throw his full support behind the gubernatorial candidacy of John M. Parker. In Parker, Huey believed he had found a fellow ideologue. His record had been quite promising thus far. In 1916, he had run for governor with Theodore Roosevelt's progressive Bull Moose Party, and had commanded a whole 37% of the votes, a remarkable feat in a state where Democrats rarely, if ever, encountered viable challenges from other parties. Parker announced that he was once more running for governor in September 1919, and while he was running on the Democratic Party platform this time around, he did not seem to have lost any of his reformist ideals. Parker's agenda was remarkably progressive for a southern candidate at this time. He promised to root out political corruption, to invest heavily in infrastructure projects, and to give the state government greater control over the economy. What had especially intrigued Huey were his promises to place more stringent regulations on the state's pipelines and to protect independent oil producers against larger companies. Both of these proposals were clearly aimed at weakening the power of standard oil. Getting Parker elected would not be an easy task. He had sullied his reputation in state politics when he had turned his back on the Democratic Party back in 1916. Parker was opposed by a group known as the Old Regulars, a club of various politicians and other political power brokers that effectively ran the city of New Orleans. The Old Regulars had a stranglehold on the state's politics. In the past five gubernatorial elections, only one candidate had been elected without their backing, The old regulars controlled the votes of the entire city of New Orleans, one-fifth of the state's population, and could levy their influence throughout the rest of southern Louisiana as well. If Parker wanted to stand a chance in this election, he needed to carry the northern half of the state, which, coincidentally, was where Huey had already begun to cultivate a following. In short, the campaign to elect John Parker as Louisiana governor was an uphill battle, but by no means an unwinnable one. Huey knew that he was putting his entire political career on the line with his decision to back Parker. If Parker won, Huey too could claim victory, by telling everyone that it was only thanks to his help that he had managed to win the election. If Parker lost, however, his political fortunes would begin to look quite dim, and he would no longer be seen as the up-and-coming political dynamo that he was. Huey was not overestimating the importance of the role he was to play in Parker's election, He used this as leverage to extract from Parker a private pledge to follow through on his campaign promises. In exchange, throughout the latter half of 1919, Huey campaigned extensively for Parker in the North, and in January 1920, the results came in. John M. Parker had won the Democratic primary, beating the old regulars-endorsed candidate by 10,000 votes. He went on to trounce the token opposition put up by the Republican Party, and he was inaugurated as governor of Louisiana on May 1st, 1920. Huey Long, the man who had helped him get to that office, was soon to be sorely disappointed at Parker's performance. His term as governor is characterized by an unwillingness to take strong and decisive action on any single issue. His reforms were moderate in scope and few in numbers. An accurate summation of his tenure as governor can be surmised from the nickname by which he was known at the time the Gravel Roads Governor. On the campaign trail, Parker had promised to invest heavily in large-scale infrastructure projects, including an overhaul of the state's road system. As governor, he sponsored a law creating an independent highway commission, and saw to it that plenty of money was allocated for the construction of new roads. But all of these roads were rather poor in quality, and did nothing to address the state's growing need for actual paved roads. When the time came for Parker to make good on his promise to curb the power of Standard Oil, The measure Parker ended up supporting did not go nearly as far as Huey had wanted it to. At this juncture, Huey began to criticize the governor for going soft on his campaign promises, but did not break with the governor entirely, at least not yet. That moment would come in November of that year, when details of his gentleman's agreement with the Standard Oil Company surfaced. The catalyst for this agreement was the proposal of a severance tax, Essentially, a severance tax is one levied on companies for the extraction of natural resources from the state. Louisiana technically had a severance tax, but the provisions of the law were so weak and most companies were able to find ways to dodge it. If an actual severance tax could be enacted and enforced, the state stood to make quite a bit of revenue that could actually go to these various infrastructure projects that Parker had proposed. Before he'd even publicly proposed the new severance tax, Governor Parker held a series of meetings with the representatives of the industries that were to be affected by it. Unsurprisingly, none of them were willing to agree to the plan as Parker had initially proposed it. Especially belligerent were the attorneys of the Standard Oil Company, who refused to accept a tax any greater than 1.5%. Parker, ever the compromiser, suggested a 2% tax rate, but he promised that he would never raise that rate throughout his entire time in office. The Standard Oil attorneys were not quite satisfied with this arrangement. They demanded to draft the bill themselves. In exchange, they would accept the 2% tax rate and not challenge the legality of the tax in court. This was the gentleman's agreement between Governor Parker and the attorneys of the Standard Oil Company. When news of this agreement reached the public, Huey completely and irrevocably broke with the governor. From then on, Huey became the Parker administration's most fierce opponent, criticizing their every action and obstructing their political agendas however he could. In early 1921, Huey published a circular, directly accusing Governor Parker as being a pawn of Standard Oil. The Standard Oil Company was now effectively running the government, and the governor, who was an egotistical coward, was too weak-willed to do anything to oppose them. The reaction to these accusations across the political spectrum was one of incredulity, Huey's claims were far too outrageous to even be entertained. In retaliation for the libelous words written against the governor, his supporters in the state legislature moved to have Huey censured, and perhaps even impeached from his position as railroad commissioner. Various proposals were put forth as to how to deal with the issue of Commissioner Long. One legislator suggested having him institutionalized for lunacy. Another suggested fabricating corruption charges against him. Governor Parker, for his part, was just as scandalized. He falsely claimed that Huey had been the only person in his entire career to have attacked his very character. The governor immediately brought libel charges against the commissioner. Huey had been a- prepared for such an eventuality, however. He was in Shreveport when he heard that a warrant had been issued for his arrest. He promptly drove to the courthouse in Baton Rouge and, producing $5,000 from his pocket, handed it to the clerk and said, quote, I figured you boys might be short of ready money down here, end quote. Huey was brought to trial in October 1921, the trial lasting a month. Huey's expert legal team, including his brother Julius, did their best to derail the proceedings. Huey's primary defense hinged on his claim that his attacks were not against Governor Parker personally, but rather against his administration as a whole. Of the comments, he said, quote, I ain't interested in saving Governor Parker's personal soul. I've been trying to do my best for the people of the state. End quote. Despite his and his team's best efforts, Huey was found guilty on two counts of libel. The punishment handed down was rather lenient, however a 30 day prison sentence, which was later suspended, and a fine of $1. The judge explained that Huey was indeed guilty of libel, but only technically. This is because during the proceedings, Governor Parker had practically admitted to doing exactly what it was that Huey had accused him of. The important thing was that Huey had managed to retain his seat on the commission. Not only that, but the following year, he had become the de facto head of the Three-Man Strong Commission. Per the new constitution of 1921, the Louisiana Railroad Commission was reorganized into the Louisiana Public Service Commission. Huey used his position to fight for the poor against the large companies that sought to exploit them. Over the next few years, he won victory after small victory, and made a name for himself across the state as a champion of the people. The most significant case he took on in his role as commissioner was the Cumberland Telephone Company case. The case itself is rather convoluted and took three whole years to come to a verdict, but the short version of the story is this. In 1920, the Cumberland Telephone Company, which provided phone services to 80,000 of Louisiana's residents, increased its rates by 25%. Huey opposed the rate increase and fought with the company in a case that made its way all the way up to the level of the United States Supreme Court. By January of 1923, Huey had not only managed to get the company to decrease its rates, But also, the company was ordered to refund to its customers a total sum of $440,000. Huey's victory in the Cumberland case won him statewide fame. He was lauded for his actions not only by the recipients of the refund checks, but by the masses of the poor. Even if they did not themselves own telephones, they were nevertheless able to recognize that Huey Long was a champion of the people. By the time 1923 came around, Huey decided that it was time to embark on the next phase of his political journey. He announced his candidacy for governor. Huey's strategy was to ride a wave of class resentments into office, and he would use the reputation he had earned from his years as railroad commissioner to do so. Circumstances, however, conspired to bring other issues to the forefront of the upcoming election, namely the Ku Klux Klan. The organization known as the Second Ku Klux Klan was founded in 1915, modeled after the Reconstruction-era reactionary terrorist organization the second Klan quickly proliferated throughout the South, the Midwest, and the West. They were dedicated to what they called 100% Americanism, meaning that any group of people they deemed to be not white, Anglo-Saxon Protestants, were the targets of their violence. They were not, at first, very prominent in Louisiana due to its large Catholic population in the South. However, between 1922 and 1924, the Klan had found a foothold in the largely Protestant northern half of the state, A series of violent attacks by the Klan in these years had brought the issue to statewide prominence and presented Huey with a very difficult situation. Both Huey and the Klan enjoyed the most widespread support in northern Louisiana, meaning that Huey, while he opposed the Klan on principle, could not outright denounce them without risking alienating a large segment of his voters. But at the same time, his unwillingness to take a hard and fast stance on the issue did nothing to endear himself to voters in Catholic Southern Louisiana, whose votes he calculated he would need in order to win. When Huey began to campaign, he did his best to keep the discourse focused on economic issues. When a journalist tried to ask him what he would do about the Klan, Huey replied, quote, "...the issue is a false one. The real issue is the standard oil and the corporate domination of the state." We have had an invisible government in Louisiana since 1879, and this is exactly the kind of secret control that people should be talking about." Quote. Huey's appeal was no doubt a powerful one. His message, at its core, was populist. In a state rife with corruption and dominated by a class of political elites, Huey, instead of courting said elites, instead solicited the votes of the common people. But as it would turn out, the issue of the Klan was simply far too divisive to be ignored. Both of his opponents, Henry L. Fuqua and Hewitt Blanchard, were both willing to speak on the issue openly. Ultimately, Huey had a rather impressive showing despite his multitude of disadvantages. He came in third place, only 3% behind the runner-up, and he carried 28 of the state's 64 parishes, winning handily across northern and central Louisiana. Outwardly, Huey blamed his loss in the 1924 election on the severe weather on election day that supposedly decreased voter turnout. Privately, however, Huey knew that he lost not only due to the Klan issue, but because he lacked the organization and the funding that his opponents enjoyed. When he ran for office the next time, and there would indeed be a next time, he would not make these same mistakes. Huey spent the next four years between the elections of 1924 and 1928 cultivating ties and forging alliances with businessmen, politicians, media men, and other power brokers in Louisiana society. Firstly, Huey needed donors to finance his campaign. The issue was that the moneyed interests of the state were generally not amenable to Huey's populist political agenda. Huey got around this issue by making all sorts of promises. Appointments to cabinet positions for politicians, lucrative government contracts for businessmen, things of that nature. One of Huey's biggest backers in the 1928 election was a New Orleans native named Robert S. Maestri. Maestri was reportedly one of the wealthiest men in New Orleans at the time. He had made a fortune selling furniture to brothels, gambling parlors, and speakeasies in the city's red-light district. And, when said dens of ill-repute were raided by the authorities, he would then reclaim his furniture and resell it at an even greater profit. Maestri donated $40,000 to Huey's campaign, and in exchange, He was promised a comfy position on the state's Conservation Commission once Huey came to power. Through dealings such as these, Huey built up an unofficial organization, a loose alliance of businessmen, politicians, and others, who had, for some reason or other, thrown in their lot with the up-and-coming candidate. In terms of the competition, the election of 1928 seemed to be far more advantageous to Huey than the previous one. Huey had spent the last four years building up name recognition across the state, He had been in campaign mode, essentially since he lost in 1924. His primary competitor, for the longest time, appeared to be one Oramel Simpson. Simpson was, by all accounts, an unremarkable politician. A conservative Democrat with little ambition or charisma, Simpson would have been, under most other circumstances, an unlikely candidate for governor. That is, until Governor Henry Fuqua died suddenly in office, and his lieutenant governor, who was Simpson, stepped in to serve the remainder of his term, adding to his complete lack of oratory ability and interpersonal magnetism was a further liability, his reputation as an extremely heavy drinker. Due to these factors, Simpson did not inspire confidence in voters, let alone in the state's power brokers, namely the old regulars of New Orleans. As previously mentioned, the old regulars, known more officially as the Choctaw Club, Practically controlled the politics of the entire state by virtue of their control over the New Orleans electorate. Their vision of politics, one of rule by elites and perpetual status quo, was fundamentally incompatible with Huey's bold populist agenda. Naturally, they sought to back whoever was running against him, but they did not believe that Simpson was up to the task. For the longest time, they struggled in vain to find someone who could provide Huey with a robust challenge until, in April 1927, A terrible natural disaster provided them with a potential answer to the long question. At that time, the Mississippi River overflowed its banks, causing some of the worst flooding Louisiana had seen in over a hundred years. Two million acres of land were inundated, and 750,000 people were left homeless. The Louisiana government appealed to Washington, D.C. for help, and as it just so happened, the chairman of the House of Representatives Committee on Flood Control was a Louisianan, Riley J. Wilson. In this role, Wilson was instrumental in coordinating federal relief efforts for those affected by the Great Flood of 1927. He also assisted in ensuring the passage of a congressional bill that would allocate federal funds to the construction of a new system of levees and dikes so as to prevent a tragedy like this from happening again in the future. Wilson's actions at the federal level not only caused his popularity to surge in his home district, but throughout the state as well. He was the man of the hour and so the old regulars looked to him as the man who could defeat Huey Long and stem the tide of populism. With the backing of the New Orleans political machine, Riley Wilson officially launched his campaign at a rally in the town of Alexandria on July 11, 1928. About 2,000 people were in attendance, and when Wilson announced his candidacy, the attendees celebrated by shouting that, It won't be long now. Huey, not one to take such a slight lying down, decided to one-up Wilson and the old regulars. He held his own event at the same location a month later. More than 8,000 people attended Huey's counter-rally. It was here that he debuted his new slogan, Every Man a King, But No One Wears a Crown, a slogan that he had borrowed from the three-time presidential candidate William Jennings Bryan. One of the lessons that Huey had learned from his failed campaign of 1924 was that he needed to earn the votes of the Catholic, French-descended population of the southern half of the state, one strategy he used was to support Catholic politicians in political races, and in doing so, to make a name for himself in the South. One such key alliance he had forged during this time was with one Paul N. Cyr, a prominent dentist from the town of Generet. Cyr was very much of French descent, so much so that he claims he wasn't able to speak a word of English until he was ten years old. Huey decided to make Cyr his lieutenant governor, giving his ticket an additional appeal in the South. Huey spent most of the year 1927 on the campaign trail. He made it his personal mission to go everywhere and talk to everybody. He made about 600 speeches throughout the course of the year, managing to draw in decent-sized crowds no matter where he went. Huey's remarkable ability to win over crowds can be attributed to his keen ability to pander to the audience. In the majority Catholic South, Huey would tell a story about how he would drive his Catholic grandparents to Mass early every Sunday morning before returning home to take his Baptist grandparents to their Mass. When asked about the veracity of the story, Huey told a reporter, quote, Don't be a damned fool. We didn't even have a horse. Quote. Huey's brother Julius jokingly claimed that Huey would have gone so far as to claim that he was part black if African Americans made up a substantial voting bloc at the time. As for his speeches themselves, Huey had greatly improved on the formula from his previous campaign. His speeches were more succinct, and, for the most part, they tended to focus on real, concrete issues. He projected the image of the confident, energetic young reformer, intent on dragging the state into modernity. He promised infrastructure projects, such as new bridges and paved roads, natural gas pipelines, and so on. His pet project was a program to distribute free textbooks to the students of the state's public school system. It was preposterous, he claimed, that Louisiana was not already providing the services to its students, like neighboring Texas already was. When asked how he was going to finance all these high-minded projects, Huey merely replied that he would force the ultra-wealthy to finally pay their fair share in taxes. Huey's platform as one can imagine, made him quite popular with the poor and disenfranchised people of the state, but not with the rich. Huey's most famous and eloquent speech from this campaign was given in St. Martinville, under the Evangeline Oak, the subject of a poem by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. The speech read in part, quote, It is here under this oak that Evangeline waited for her lover Gabriel who never came. This oak is an immortal spot, made so by Longfellow's poem, but Evangeline is not the only one who has waited here in disappointment. Where are the schools that you have waited for your children to have that have never come? Where are the roads and the highways that you will send your money to build that are no nearer now than ever before? Where are the institutions to care for the sick and disabled? Evangeline wept bitter tears in her disappointment, but it lasted only through one lifetime. Your tears in this country around this oak have lasted for generations. Give me the chance to dry the eyes of the people who still weep here. Of course, not all of Huey's speeches were so eloquent. Oftentimes, he would launch into fiery denunciations of his political opponent. Perhaps having learned his lesson from the libel suit debacle, Huey often made it a point to not attack his opponent's personal character, but rather the character of those who supported them. For instance, he accused Wilson of being supported by a bunch of stuffed suits calling themselves square dealers. Simpson he denounced as being supported by a gang of cutthroats and liars from Bourbon Street brothels, and those moth-eaten aristocrats sipping their booze and branch water on rich plantations. Quote. On at least one occasion, Huey's inflammatory rhetoric led to a violent physical altercation with one of the targets of his derision, former governor J.Y. Sanders. On November 15, 1927, Sanders just so happened to run into Huey in the lobby of the Roosevelt Hotel in New Orleans. Huey had accused Sanders of controlling his opponents behind the scenes. More pointedly, Huey had given him the nickname Old Buzzardback, on account of his advanced age and poor posture. Upon seeing Huey from across the lobby, Sanders called out to him, calling him a liar and a coward. Huey responded by immediately running up to the former governor, and punching him across the face, before turning tail and running towards the elevators on the other side of the lobby. Sanders chased him into the elevator, whereupon a two-minute-long scuffle ensued in the enclosed space. As they reached the next floor, bystanders stepped in to separate the two from each other. Both sides claimed victory. At a rally held that night, Huey waved around a cuff that he had torn from Sanders' shirt as proof of his triumph. The Democratic gubernatorial primary was slated for July 17, 1928. The initial results did not bode well for Huey, but the final results announced the next day were undeniable. He had won 44% of the vote, while second place Wilson and third place Simpson had won around 28% each. Huey had managed to carry 47 of the state's 64 parishes. Most of the areas that Huey had won were rural. But, the more important thing was that he had won big across the whole state, no small feat in a state where politics were traditionally divided along a northern-southern axis. Seeing as how Huey had failed to win an outright majority, a runoff election that would pit Huey against the runner-up was in order. Huey and his organization had to move quickly to ensure that the Wilson and Simpson factions did not create a coalition to defeat him. This turned out to be an easier task than he had originally figured. Most of those in the Simpson faction had sensed the way the wind was blowing, and decided to throw in the lot with the clear winner, Huey Long. Huey had already cultivated personal connections with certain elements of Simpson's campaign, and he used these connections to gain access to Simpson's person, who, in the week following the election, had gone on a drinking binge and had not been seen in public since. Huey offered Simpson a minor position in his administration if he agreed to officially endorse him, which Simpson reluctantly did. With Simpson's voters now poised to go over to Huey instead of Wilson, Wilson and the old regulars realized that their cause was hopeless. At their insistence, Riley J. Wilson conceded the race to Huey. The Democratic Party was really the only election that mattered, as Louisiana, like most of the South, was effectively a one-party state in this period. The Republicans put up a nominal competition in each race, and were uniformly demolished at the polls. And with that, Huey Long was effectively the next governor of the state of Louisiana. And I believe that is as good a place as any to end the narrative for now. What will Huey do once in office? Will he be able to defy the state's political establishment yet again and enact his bold, progressive vision for the state of Louisiana? You'll have to tune in again in two weeks to find out. In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or anything else you'd like me to address, you can email me at Pod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can reach me via Twitter or Facebook, links to both of which can be found in this episode's description. If you like this episode, please consider supporting the show financially. You can do this by either subscribing to the show's Patreon page, or by buying some books from me off of the show's eBay marketplace. Until next time, this has been the Historia Dramatica Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. I'm your host, Willem Connor every man signing, a king, every man a king, for you can be a millionaire. But there's nothing belonging to others. There's enough for all people to share. When it's sunny June and December too, or in the winter time or spring, there'll be peace without end, every neighbor a friend, with every man of king.